We're going to be in Exodus 34, beginning in verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord, he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. This is the word of our God. You may have a seat. Don't look at the sun. Don't look at the sun. My mom, I don't... Raise your hand if your parents ever told you, don't stare at the sun. Right? And my mom didn't need to tell me that as often as she did because I'm sensitive to light anyway. I'd start crying right away. My eyes would just water from being out in the bright sun. Well, that threw me off. We cannot take staring at the sun. If we do it too much, we'll begin to lose our eyesight. Our retinas will burn. And so if we want to try to figure out how brilliant and bright and glorious the sun is, we need to figure out another way, don't we? And one way that we can figure out the brilliance and the brightness and the glory of the sun is by looking at the moon at nighttime. Okay, if we're out and it's nice full moon and a clear night, the moon just shines brilliantly, doesn't it? And yet, the moon is radically different than the sun. The sun is a star, and in its core it is burning at incredibly high temperatures, and it is sending out light energy. The moon is more or less just a rock that's going around the earth. It cannot produce its own light. It can only reflect the light of the sun. And so when we go out at night and we see a full moon and we say, wow, the moon is really bright, that can teach us and tell us how much more brilliant and how much brighter the sun must be. Well, today as we look in Exodus 34, 29 to 35, we're going to be talking about Moses and the fact that his face was shining. We don't really know how Moses' face was shining. The Hebrew that, that he wrote to, to uh, give us that concept was he said horns were coming out of his face. I don't think he meant horns like on a, on a bull or a moose or something, but he was trying to ex- express that something was radiating out of his face. Probably having to do with light. As Jason said earlier, God manifests himself often in brilliant light. And so probably there was light shining, radiating forth from Moses' face. But it wasn't because of Moses' glory. Moses wasn't producing that light because of his glory. It was because, the Bible says, 
he had been speaking with God. And he was reflecting the glory of God after being in his presence. And I want to look at some of the implications of that for the people of Israel and also for us this morning. So I've split this sermon into three parts. The glory of God in the face of Moses. The glory of God in the grace of the gospel. And the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And my prayer this morning, before I came here, my prayer that I prayed right before I came up here this morning, the prayer that Jason prayed with me before I came up here this morning is that we all will behold the glory of God this morning and that we will be transformed. So let's start with the glory of God in the face of Moses. As we begin our passage this morning, the first thing it tells us is that Moses is coming down off of Mount Sinai. So let's review. Moses has been doing a lot of mountain climbing. He's gone up and down Sinai numerous times. The last time he went up Mount Sinai, he stayed for 40 days. God wrote on tablets of stone the law, the Ten Commandments. But then when Moses and Joshua descended the mountain, there was a ruckus in the camp. It was the sound of pagan worship. They were idolatry, idolatrous. They were worshiping a golden calf, and they had broken the covenant. And so to signify that, Moses threw down the two tablets and broke them. And in the meantime, he had pleaded with God on behalf of the people of Israel. He had mediated for them. He had begged God not to disown them. And finally, when God said, okay, I will go with you, Moses said, I need a little more confirmation. Please show me your glory. And so God had shown him his glory through the proclamation of his name. Moses stayed up another 40 days and 40 nights in the the Bible says that Moses was fasting during that time. He said he didn't take in any food or drink. God must have been sustaining his body as he was communing with God. And God wrote on the tablets of stone and he was bringing them down the mountain. And that's what he's doing here in verse 29. Now, the last time, as I said, that Moses came down the mountain, there was, there was idol worship going on, right? And so I imagine as he walked down the mountain, he was wondering what he was going to encounter this time. But I don't think he got what he expected because it said Moses didn't know that his face was shining. And so when he got to camp and all the people were afraid of him, they probably didn't know why. Now I imagine if I had walked in here today and my face had been shining, it would have probably freaked a lot of you out, huh? Think about that, Pastor Steve with a shining face, okay, like a Christmas tree light or something. And so they saw Moses with his shining face and they were afraid of him. Even Aaron, his brother, was afraid of him. But Moses, it says, they must have worked it out because it says that Moses called to them in verse 31. And the leaders and Aaron came to him and he talked, spoke with them and then in verse uh, 32, 
all the people came to Moses, and he spoke to them everything that the Lord had commanded him to speak. And then in verse 33, it says he put a veil over his face. Now, it's interesting, this shining face. Again, Moses didn't know his face was shining, so he didn't make his own face shine, right? God had done it to him. But God had done it to him, let's remember, in response to Moses' faithfulness. Moses had faithfully mediated between God and Israel. Moses had obediently gone up the mountain twice. Moses had obediently stayed for 40 days and 40 nights. He had obediently fasted and communed with God. And in response to that, Moses' face was shining with the glory of God. Now, why would God do that? Let's think about that for a minute. Why was Moses' face shining? I mean, it tells us it's because he was speaking to God, but God did it. Why would God do that? Well, I can think of several reasons and implications um, of Moses' shining face, and I think that the first one is it confirmed to the people of Israel that Moses was indeed the mediator, God's choice to be the mediator between himself and the people of Israel. As I said earlier, if I'd walked in here with a shining face, now I hope that when any of us are faithfully preaching from the Word of God, I hope you all are listening as if you're hearing from God. But if I'd walked in here with a shining face, I'm thinking you guys would have sat up and taken notice a little bit more even. I'm thinking you would have been laser focused on what I said. And so when Moses comes down with a shining face, the people are listening to him and they're saying, this is God's spokesperson. He speaks to us the words of God. Secondly, it confirmed to both Moses and the people of Israel that God's presence would continue to dwell in their midst. Remember, God had said to Moses, you take those people to the promised land. I don't want anything to do with them. But Moses mediated on their behalf and interceded for them to where God said, okay, I will go with you. But Moses needed a little more confirmation. And this is another way that God confirmed to him and to the people I'm going to be your God, and you will be my people. Thirdly, I think it confirmed the greatness of God. The people needed to have the glory of God reestablished in their minds because it's only been six weeks since they were worshiping that golden calf. They said, we want other gods. We're done with this Yahweh. We're done with Moses. So God is reconfirming to them that he is their almighty God and their glorious God, and he will dwell with them and he will lead them. Now, we mentioned that in, in, in verse 33, it says that Moses put a veil over his face, and, and then it goes on to tell us what happened when he would go to the tent of meeting. Now, do you remember the tent of meeting from chapter 33? Let's review really quickly. Chapter 33, starting in verse 7, says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off 
from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So Moses, in writing Exodus, makes a point that whenever he would go into the tent, he would remove the veil and he would speak to the Lord. And when he came out of the tent, the people would see that his face was shining and he would relate to them what the Lord had said and then he would cover it again with a veil. It, it kind of sounds like that, that that glory that was radiating from Moses' face would start to fade, right? And then he would go to the tent and it would be like a battery being recharged. And Moses would put the veil over his face because he had to act as the administrator of the people of Israel. And he didn't want to scare them to death when he had to interact with them. And so he wore this veil. And on the surface, as we read Exodus 34, 25 to 39, that, that's pretty much it. That's what... Exodus 34, 25 to 39, or 29 to 35 tells us. That's, those are the implications for the people of Israel. But bless his heart, Paul, in 2 Corinthians 3, he goes on to tell us what some of the implications of Moses' shining face and the veil that he put over his face, how that relates to people in the New Covenant. And it helps to, for us to see how Exodus 34 shows the glory of God and the grace of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul develops a contrast between what he calls the letter and the spirit. And when he says the letter, he is referring to the Mosaic law, primarily the moral law, and as they are embodied in the Ten Commandments. And so in 2 Corinthians, you probably want to turn your Bible there, we'll have it on the screen, but I'm going to be looking at that passage now for the rest of the time. In verse 6 of chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, God made us sufficient, talking about the apostles and the people that were with him, God made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, the Spirit gives life. And so, as I said, we're going to look at how the, the, the Exodus 34 tells us the glory of God and the grace of the gospel. But first, I think we need to talk about the law a little bit. Because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding in the evangelical church about the law. When Paul says here that the law kills, what he's saying is it kills because it sets a standard for perfect obedience. But it doesn't give us the ability to obey it. 
And so Paul gives an example in Romans 7. He says, well, I wouldn't have known what it meant to covet if I hadn't read in the law that I shouldn't covet. But once I read in the law that I shouldn't covet, something really strange happened inside of me. Because of my sin, the law, when it says do not covet, the commandment worked within me an evil desire to covet all the more. And so the law doesn't bring life, it brings death. It forces us to recognize that we are sinners, dead in our trespasses, that we are by nature children of wrath, and we can't do anything about it, and the law doesn't help us. So is there something wrong with the law? Paul says, God forbid. Absolutely not. He says in Romans 7.12, the law is holy and righteous and good. It's a gracious gift from a gracious God. There is glory in the law because it was given by glorious God. The problem is with us. We are sinners who need a transformation that the law cannot give. Let's move on in 2 Corinthians 3, looking at verse 7 and following. Paul says this, Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So the the fourth implication of the radiance of Moses' face is here. It shows us the glory of the gospel, but I think we need to understand the glory of the law as well. Paul says there in verse 11, what was being brought to an end came with glory. God's giving of the law was gracious. What, what did it mean for the people of Israel? It gave them an absolute standard, an objective standard of right and wrong. It gave them a structure, a legal structure that would help them to survive as a nation through thousands of years of tribulation. Most importantly, it gave them a roadmap for how to live in covenant with their God. Imperfect covenant, though it was. But the glory of the law is that it points to a better covenant. It points to one that is coming. Because, as I said, the law was powerless to change the hearts of people. And therefore, God initiated a new covenant, a covenant sealed in the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
And people can be in covenant with their God through this new covenant by faith in Jesus Christ. When people enter into a covenant relationship with God by receiving, by faith, the gift of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ, Ezekiel says we're given a new heart. We're given a heart that desires to obey God. A heart that has been set free from the shackles of sin, set free from the condemnation of sin, a, part, a heart that is now able to do what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so do we need the law? Absolutely we need the law so that we know what it is we're supposed to do as new creations in Christ. We're saved by grace through faith, but we are new creations created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so the law is not useless to us, but it can't save us. And the glory of the gospel is so wonderful and brilliant that Paul says, that in comparison to it, the law seems to have no glory at all. It's like, have you ever looked up on a clear day in the middle of the day and seen the moon up there in the sky somewhere? I don't know what phase of the moon it has to be to see that, but you can look up sometimes and see the moon in the middle of the day, right? And, and it is reflecting light because you wouldn't be able to see it if it wasn't, but it doesn't look brilliant, does it? It's kind of a white rock sitting up there. And that's because in the presence of the brilliant sunshine, the moon seems to have no glory at all. And that's the comparison Paul's making here between the gospel and the law. That the brilliance and the glory of the gospel is so great in comparison to the law that the law appears, as I said, not to have any glory at all. The gospel is glorious because it empowers us in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus came and fulfilled the law, fulfilled it for us, but also empowers us to do the same thing. And then as we move on in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul teaches us something about the veil that Moses put over his face. Look at verses 12 and 13. Since we have such a hope, the hope of the gospel, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. The old covenant, based on the law given by God to Moses for all its glory, was not the final covenant. It would come to an end. Its glory was fading. And so the glory radiating from Moses' face was also fading. And Paul says that another reason that Moses would put a veil over his face was so that Israel would not have to gaze at the outcome of what was coming to an end. And then, in verse 14, Paul takes that meaning of the veil and he kind of changes it again to signify the hardness of heart and mind and the people of Israel. So look at verse 14, chapter 3, 2 Corinthians. 
But there, the Jews, the Israelites, minds were hardened. For to this day, Paul writes in the first century A.D., but it's true today in the 21st century A.D., for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. A veil lies over the hearts of the Jewish people when the law is read, because the law is powerless to change them. But it's not just the law that is being veiled. Because if we were to read on, I'm not going to put it up on the screen, but if we were to read on in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says that to those who are perishing, the gospel is veiled. And so it's not just for Jewish people that it's veiled, it's for all people who are not trusting in Jesus Christ for their salvation. That the gospel is veiled, and it's veiled by the God of this world, who is Satan. And they are powerless, powerless without a saving act of God to see the truth of the glory of the gospel. And so they continue to stumble along in spiritual blindness. And that veil, 2 Corinthians 3.14 says, can only be lifted by Christ. Only if they turn to the Lord, verse 16, will that veil be lifted and they will recognize Jesus as their Messiah and receive the salvation that comes by grace through faith in Christ. The glory of the gospel far outshines the glory of the law. But the gospel is glorious only because of the one who came to rescue his people from the dark and deadly dominion of sin. The gospel is glorious because of the glory in the face of Jesus Christ. So far, we've seen four implications of Moses' shining face. It confirmed that Moses was speaking to the people on behalf of Yahweh. It confirmed that God's presence would dwell in the midst of Israel. It confirmed the glory of Yahweh. It confirmed the glory of the gospel. And the fifth, and I think for us, very important implication of the shining face of Moses is that it confirms that the people of God, through communing with God and beholding his glory, can be changed into his likeness. And I was joking around earlier, talking about me coming in to the to the gathering with a shining face, but just chew on that for a minute. Wouldn't it be cool? Wouldn't it be cool if we could commune with God in such a way, like Moses did, that we'd walk around with a shining face? Wouldn't that be awesome? But you know what? It is possible. It's possible if we're walking by faith and not by sight. Jason said earlier that sometimes God 
blesses people by having a, giving a physical manifestation of himself. But now we have the inward witness of the Holy Spirit within those who believe, right? And if we're walking by faith and not by sight, we can see the changed hearts and lives of the people around us and in our own selves if we're following Christ. How do we do that? Let's look at verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 3. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And we all, who's Paul talking about? And we all, well, he says, we all with unveiled faces. Remember, who removes the veil? Christ. And when is the veil removed? When we turn to the Lord. And so Paul is talking here about people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection for the forgiveness of their sin and for their salvation from the wrath of God. Those people have had the veil removed. He's talking about people who have received God's free gift of salvation by grace through faith. And when this becomes a reality for you, if it hasn't yet, then and only then can you behold the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says this, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Back to verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 3, the result of beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is that you're transformed. Transformed is a... Kids, a fancier word for change. You're changed. The Greek word, the word that transformed, translated, is the word we get our word metamorphosis from. And I fear that I'm going to mess up the science here, but it's when a caterpillar makes a cocoon, right? There's a fancier name for cocoon, right? I don't know what it is. But anyway, crawls in, makes this thing, and then after a certain amount of time, when it comes out, what is it? A butterfly. And, and 2 Corinthians 3.18 says we are metamorphosed when we behold the glory of God. We're like we're worms, but we come out as butterflies. Isn't that not awesome? If you're walking by faith and not by sight, you can see it. So how do we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Let's take a clue from the life of Moses, shall we? Exodus 33, Moses prayed to God. He said, please show me your glory. God said, oh, okay. So you really can't see my glory and live, but I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to cover your face. I'm going to pass by. You can see my afterglory. But the important thing that happened as he passed by is he spoke words, didn't he? The words of God contained the glory of God. 
And he, he spoke his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and so on. And Moses stayed up there for 40 days and 40 nights communing with God. And he came down off the mountain with a shining face. Do you want to behold the glory of God? I recommend you pray, first of all, fervently and humbly, God, please show me your glory. And then look for the glory of God from the words of God. Read the Bible. Study the Bible. Speak the Bible. Sing the Bible. Pray the Bible. Memorize the Bible. Meditate on the Bible. Hide God's Word in your heart and treasure it. Open the Bible and you can behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then spend time like Moses did, communing with God, praying. You might, you might be thinking, well, I don't have 40 days. But I'd be willing to bet that every person in this room has more time than they are allotting to it. Ask the Holy Spirit to remove the veil from your eyes and help you to see the glory of God and thereby transform you into the image of Jesus Christ from one degree of glory to the next. And you know what the best part of this is? All of this is just a foretaste of what's coming. It's like on Thanksgiving. My, my wonderful, beautiful wife, every Thanksgiving, slaves to prepare a feast for our family. And as the house begins to fill with the luscious aroma of this feast, the grandchildren smell it and they begin to migrate, usually two by two, to the kitchen. Grandma, can I have a taste? And because she's such a wonderful grandma, she always says, yes, here, you can have a taste. But then because our kitchen's small, she says, now get out of the way. Get, go do something so I can cook. But they come in. Can I have a taste? And they get a taste. And that foretaste tastes so good. Is anybody else's mouth watering right now? It tastes so good, but I want to tell you that foretaste doesn't taste nearly as good as the whole feast. And all of the things that she's prepared that go together. If you are a follower of Christ, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are now the children of God. But what you will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, when Jesus Christ returns finally and fully to establish His kingdom on earth. We will be like Him because then we will at last see Him 
in all of his glory, face to face. We will see him fully and completely as he is. Now we see him as in a mirror dimly. But one day we will see him face to face. Now we know in part. Then we shall know fully, even as we are fully known. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would work in our hearts to desire to see your glory. Lord, I pray that you would make the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Lord, help us to pray with John the Baptist. He must increase and I must decrease. Lord, help us to pursue you passionately. And Lord, I pray for those that are in my hearing that have not yet trusted Jesus for their salvation. Lord, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to use the word that's been implanted to to bring forth new life, to give them the faith that they need to respond to you. Lord, I pray that you would visit us this morning in a saving and sanctifying way. In Jesus' name, amen.